This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. This week we're going to be talking about John 6. Well, we've already been talking about John 6, but when people say John 6, they usually mean the part that we're going to talk about today. And that's the part where Jesus says something shocking to people that's more surprising to them than that he walked on water. So if you think the last storm was bad, wait till you see this one. He confronts a crowd that's all excited about him, and he makes them less excited. Then doubts arise even among his apostles. I think we'll get to that one next episode. But they'll have to apply the lesson we learned last time. Just walk forward into the storm of whatever kind with your eyes on Jesus. And as we'll see, a lot of people failed. But here is the first excerpt I'll read from John 6. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. When the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father sent his seal. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Well, first of all, this reiterates the point we've been making all along in this season from John the Baptist in the dungeon wondering what happened to the woman with the hemorrhage desperate to find something that fulfills her life. It's also a throwback to the woman at the well who reacted to Christ's offer of living water by saying, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There are two hungers, two thirsts, two kinds of need that everyone has. One is physical and the other is spiritual. One addresses a pain in our body, the other addresses a pain in our heart. One we fulfill every day, the other is infinite and can't be fulfilled. The Gospel passage today shows the unintended consequences of last Sunday's story of Jesus feeding the multitude. They started to focus on the first kind of hunger only. Jesus took pity on them and fed them. They responded by following him around, expecting more food. You are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled, Jesus says. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. 
He's gearing up to tell them about the Eucharist, the bread of heaven, but first he needs to deal with their desire for regular old bread. As St. John Paul II warned in 1983 in Peru, I wish that you may no longer be hungry for bread, but that you may still be hungry for God. This hunger constitutes a great richness, a richness of the poor that must not be lost through any program. You cannot replace the goodness of God with any other worldly goods. So you who are hungry, I wish you had an ever greater hunger for God. End quote. It's strange to think how these two hungers reach back to the very beginning of time. In the story of the fall, in the Garden of Eden, we hear, quote, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it, end quote. That's the first sin of mankind, focusing on our appetite for bread and mixing it up with our appetite for the infinite in a disordered way. Adam and Eve are simultaneously disobedient and giving in to their appetites. And the biblical story in Genesis represents our first sin and says true things about our first sin. But theologians will say that they don't know what the actual first sin was. It didn't involve eating a pear or an apple. But I do think it had something to do with food in some way. So many other sins did following it. There were two offerings of Cain and Abel. Cain offered a lamb. Abel offered wheat. God accepted Abel and his offering. He rejected Cain and his offering. I bet Cain was rejected because he was too focused on that first hunger and offered his offering begrudgingly. Abel gave his offering focused on that second hunger, saying, my hunger for God is greater than my hunger for this lamb, in effect, and he was accepted. Cain soon gives in to other appetites, his appetites for revenge. Food is back at center stage in the Old Testament when a mysterious priest named Melchizedek offers bread and wine as a sacrifice and tells Abraham that he is blessed by God. He matches bread and wine with the infinite hunger that Abraham has. And so that's a really positive thing. And later we hear from God himself blessing Abraham, promising him descendants that number as the stars. Later, three angels who Abraham worship as God visit Abraham, and he offers them his own tender and good calf as a meal. It is then that he is told that his son will come, Isaac, who will fulfill this promise to bless Abraham, making his descendants number as the stars. He gives them food, and he gets back infinity. Many years later, Abraham's son Isaac is ready to pass that blessing on to his son Esau. This would make Esau the father of the great nation and the chosen people. But Esau prefers his first hunger for food to his hunger for God, and he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. Like Cain, he loses out. Jacob gets the blessing instead. He receives the name Israel and has many sons, including Joseph, the one of the coat of many colors, who ends up imprisoned in Egypt. Strangely, when Joseph ends up in prison, he proves himself by interpreting the dreams of two fellow inmates, which happen to be a bread maker and a chalice holder, bringing bread and wine back into the picture. Then Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, 
which happens to be about food. And Pharaoh makes him a leader in the land. And his leadership is shown precisely by the way he manages grain. Thereafter, grain is the vehicle that reunites his family and lets salvation history continue. Fast forward through salvation history and you get more of the same. God saves Moses and the Israelites through a sacred meal in which a lamb is slaughtered and eaten by each family. He matches their hunger for food with their hunger for God, and in obedience they are saved. Later the Israelites grumble in the desert, and God gives them food, manna from heaven, which they have to handle in a way that is obedient to the Lord. Then come the laws of worship, which are all about food, animal offerings, and grain offerings. Whether or not you are blessed by God all depends on what you eat when. It all depends on matching your appetite for bread with your appetite for God and with your obedience. And so it goes on and on. God offers them the promised land, which is flowing with milk and honey. David guards the Ark of the Covenant, which includes the tablets of the law, but also manna from the wilderness, God's will and God's food. David wants to house the Ark properly, and God replies by offering David a kingdom. Then we get to the temple, which is all about the lambs and the grains and the bread of the presence, and all about these offerings of food. Through it all, the people keep misunderstanding. They want their material needs met. God wants their spiritual needs met. They want a land that can feed them. He wants to give them a heaven that will honor them. Eventually, we start hearing God promise both. He will give them a heavenly land that will fulfill both hungers, their hunger for food and for God. Isaiah speaks about it, a heavenly mountain of food and forgiveness, an afterlife. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all people, and he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, the reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth. Uh, so this is a vision of the afterlife. Proverbs has another one that's fascinating, a house of wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She calls from the highest point in the city, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. End quote. The church loves that one with the seven pillars, sounds like the seven sacraments. But everybody's favorite psalm also talks about a meal. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. End quote. So that's the background of these two readings. God's people have always wanted food. He has always wanted to give them food and more. The Israelites in the desert said they would rather be slaves eating from the flesh pots of Egypt than to be the chosen people of God, free and hungry. So God gives them manna in the desert and flocks of quail. Now, Jesus gave them bread and fish, and they follow him around wanting more. So Jesus tells them what God has been telling us ever since Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say, Lord, give us this bread always. In other words, he wants to fulfill both their hungers 
for bread and for God. They're focused on their hunger for bread. What do you think the odds are that the Jewish people were grumblers who totally didn't get it, but we're totally different? We do get it. We don't grumble. The odds aren't good that human nature has changed that dramatically. We do exactly the same thing today. We easily give up our Catholic identity for material gain, and we lose our Christian edge once we are satisfied and happy. Maybe we have to hide our faith to get ahead and work, hide it just a little bit or a lot. Maybe once we get what we wanted, material prosperity, we feel a little bit embarrassed about being Catholic and some of the things that we do as Catholics. Maybe once we have succeeded, we spend a little more than we should on entertainment, recreation, and keeping up with the neighbors and find that we no longer have enough to give to those in need. And so we teach ourselves not to worry about that anymore. Maybe once we satiate our hunger for bread, we no longer hunger for God. But you know what? It's always there somewhere. Without God, deep down, we are lonely, needy, wanting, hungry. As Mother Teresa put it, the hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. Jesus wants to preserve both hungers. So the gospel goes on. And again, I'll read excerpts, uh, long, long gospel here. He says a lot of things about the Father, which actually will become more relevant in a future episode. But here are some excerpts from John 6, starting with verse 34. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not murmur among yourselves. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The theologian Brant Petrie has a book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, which is absolutely amazing, and it covers a lot of basics with regard to what's going on here. He uses Jewish texts expressing the faith of the time and shows what kind of Messiah the Jews were really waiting for. 
They expected a new Moses, a leader who would cross over water miraculously, a new leader who would talk to God effortlessly. Wow, and we just saw Jesus doing both. They expected a new Passover that would inaugurate a new kingdom. Well, John told us Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he will soon show us what that means. They wanted a new exodus, a way up and out of the confusing maze that is our world. Think about that. The old Moses led them out of slavery to the Egyptians. Now they probably wanted to be led out of subjugation to the Romans, but Jesus instead comes to destroy the works of the devil and to end their slavery to him. And they thought a new Moses would feed them also daily. In fact, They may have remembered Jesus had taught them to pray, give us this day our daily bread, which is very like a promise of a new manna from a new Moses. What they probably didn't understand was that this strange word he used, instead of repeating the bit about dailiness and every day, what Jesus actually says is give us this day our super substantial bread. What blew their mind was that he said he was the bread that came down from heaven. What astonished them was that their two hungers would once again be fulfilled by a meal provided by God. He plans once again to offer a sacred meal that, if done in the spirit of obedience, will lead to salvation. There's six verses in a row here that make it very clear what he means. In verse 51, he says, The bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The synagogue leaders object, and so Jesus doubles down. In verse 53, he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. In verse 54, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 55, he says, My flesh is real food, and my blood is drink indeed. He says it again in verse 56. So that's six verses, one after the other, that make it clear what he means. It reminds me of the six verses in a row saying Mary is blessed and has a special relationship with the Holy Spirit in Luke 1, verses 41 through 46. It seems like in Scripture, when the Holy Spirit wants to tell us something important that we might find counterintuitive, he is not too proud to beat us over the head with it. In John 6, it's even clearer if you read it in the original Greek. In English, we have words like dine or partake that are more delicate ways of saying eat, or words like gnaw or chew, which is a stronger way of saying eat. Jesus uses strong verbs here to say eat as in gnaw. He means real eating, not partaking. Like he has so many times before, he wants us to combine our two hungers. This is not unlike the two hungers that are combined in marriage. On the one hand is a sexual appetite. On the other is the desire to be united with your beloved. We physically unite, and that sign reveals that we are spiritually united. Here's a physical act which unites us also. The Catechism says, The principal fruit of receiving the Eucharist in Holy Communion is an intimate union with Jesus Christ. That's the first fruit of receiving the Eucharist, partaking of Jesus. And it reverses that first bad meal that Adam and Eve had that disunited them with God. And what they're doing, of course, is an act which nourishes. And then we get nourishment for our soul in this case. That's the second fruit of the Eucharist, says the Catechism. Quote, through the Eucharist, those who live from the life of Christ 
are fed and strengthened, end quote. In other words, it's a spiritual version of what the Israelites got in the desert. They got food to nourish them for their journey. We get food that nourishes us for our journey of life. What else does the sacrament do? Third, it transforms us by preserving us in avoiding sin. The Catechism says the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time preserving us from future sins. Fourth, the Eucharist changes us by uniting us to the Trinity. As Mary found out, you can't be united to Christ without also being united with the Spirit and the Father. She experienced it directly. The Holy Spirit came upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowed her, and she conceived the Son of God. The life of the Trinity is a continual self-gift one to the other. The Father points to the Son, the Son points to the Father, the Father sends the Spirit, or the Father and Son together send the Spirit. The Spirit raises our eyes back to the Father and the Son. This is what happens in the Eucharist. Jesus says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And then Jesus says, His words are spirit and life. The Catechism explains that for us, quote, the communion of the Holy Trinity is lived out in prayer and above all in the Eucharist. So exactly what Abraham's meal for the three angels representing the Trinity did, the same thing happens for us. It unites us with their spirit and purpose and their direction and gives us their blessing in our life. Fifth, the Eucharist transforms us by welcoming us into a whole family of saints. Again, this is like marriage. In addition to being united to April Hoops, my wedding united me to her whole family with all the help they have given me since. The Eucharist does that too, says the Catechism. Quote, the communion of saints must be understood as the communion of the sacraments. But this name is better suited to the Eucharist than to any other, because it is primarily the Eucharist that brings that communion about. End quote. Just as the Passover meal united the Israelites together on their journey to the Promised Land, in the Eucharist we gain a family of Christians on earth and saints in heaven who will walk with us on our journey. Okay, the last fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to the Catechism, is that it makes us ready to enter the promised land of heaven. Quote, there is no surer pledge or dearer sign of the great hope in the new heavens and new earth than the Eucharist, end quote. After the Eucharist, we are no longer just random people. We are with Christ and in Christ and for Christ and from Christ forever. This has been the goal of God all along. He walked in the garden with Adam and has been unable to draw close to us due to our rejection. So he's been wooing us ever since. He knows a way to our heart is through our stomach. And he's been banking on that throughout salvation history. Next week, we'll finish this out, hearing the complaints. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And learning that after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. And while most Christians worldwide belong to a church which professes that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist, many still reject this and turn away from his real presence on earth. But for now, let's simply stay with Jesus as he fulfills the vision that he will provide new manna to nourish us on a new exodus to a new promised land, a mountain of righteousness, and rest with him in the truth that he will fulfill the promise of the Psalms, including Psalm 34, that tells us, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. St. Ambrose described that line, taste and see, in beautiful words that influenced 
St. Augustine's conversion, St. Ambrose said, quote, In Christ we possess everything. Let every soul approach him, whether it is sick with the sins of the flesh, fastened by the nails of worldly desire, every soul that is admittedly still imperfect or progressing by intense medication or already perfect in its many virtues. Everyone is in the Lord's power, and Christ is all things to us. If you desire to heal your wounds, he is your doctor. If you are on fire with fever, he is your fountain. If you are burdened with iniquity, he is your justification. If you need help, he is your strength. If you fear death, he is your life. If you desire heaven, he is your way. If you are fleeing from darkness, he is your light. If you are seeking food, he is your nourishment. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy is the one who takes refuge in him." End quote. In Christ's offering of his own flesh and blood, he takes the strands of all these stories, from Adam and Eve to Jacob and Esau to Moses and David, he takes us all, from Mary and Joseph to Ambrose and Augustine to you and me, he unites us with his flesh and blood to make our stories part of his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.